You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, we look at the contentious issue of giving birth at home versus in hospital. A paper recently published on bmj.com shows it is safe for women in the Netherlands to have their baby at home, but that risk assessment is key to this success. In many countries where there are very few home births, it's not necessarily so that only low-risk women deliver at home. And that is one of our very important pillars of the system. But firstly, why clinical guidelines can't always be trusted. Hi, I'm Edward Davis, the US News and Features Editor at the BMJ, and I'm here with Jeannie Lenzer, who is an investigative reporter who has done a feature for us on clinical guidelines this week. Um, Jeannie, welcome, and um, to talk us through your, your article. Well, I bumped into this story years ago when I first found out what is the central fact that drove this article and really startled me, and that was that there were national guidelines, um, highly touted national guidelines, um, in which doctors were following treatment for acute spinal cord injury that many didn't believe uh, was either effective or safe. And what shocked me was when I was attending a conference of over a 1,000 neurosurgeons, and they did a poll of the audience. And the rapid response poll, because they had little electronic gadgets, um, showed that only 6% of the neurosurgeons felt that the treatment was safe and effective and should be a standard of care. Yet when they asked those same neurosurgeons how many of them would continue giving the treatment, 60% said that they would. And that's particularly troubling because they had just listened to a neurosurgeon who estimated that the number of deaths caused by the treatment, excess deaths, exceeded the number of deaths of people killed in the World Trade Center attacks in 9-11. And the deaths were caused by infection and prolonged hospitalization. So this wasn't just a matter of something that was ineffective. This is a matter of doctors believing that something was actually dangerous for their patients. And yet, because they felt trapped by guidelines, they were following them. And when they asked the doctors why they would continue giving it, that's what they said. They were afraid of professional censure or malpractice suits for failing to follow a standard of of care. This was some years ago now, wasn't it, that this was a problem? Yes, it was. But what happened more recently was around TPA for stroke. And I was aware that this was one of the most contentious areas of emergency medicine. Um, It caused fiery debates because so many doctors, so many emergency doctors were opposed to the use of TPA uh, for strokes because they were very concerned about the much higher rate of cerebral hemorrhage associated with this drug. And yet when I looked at the panel guideline, there wasn't one single doctor on the guideline panel that felt that uh, TPA for stroke needed to be reevaluated. They were all advocates. They were all believers. And it turns out that most of them had financial conflicts. And um, given the, the sort of the situation we had with uh, steroids for spinal injections going back, you'd have thought that conflicts of interest were much more closely monitored now, but you're, you're, you found this isn't the case. 
Yeah, that's exactly the concern is that one would think that with all these scandals that erupt over financial conflicts that actually they would be getting less or people would be more conscious and um, less likely to have financial conflicts. And exactly the opposite is true um, in terms of the influence on guidelines by industry, in part because research itself is increasingly funded by industry. So with the dramatic rise where almost no research is independent any longer in the United States, what it means is they not only um, affect the evidence base, but they also have a big investment in making sure that guidelines come out the way they want them to. And so they often trigger actions to make sure that guidelines are put in place and followed. So, for example, with TPA for Stroke, one of the things they did was Genentech funded the American Stroke Association very strongly, gave them a lot of money. The American Stroke Association then partnered with a quasi-governmental agency called the Joint Commission, which regulates hospitals and certifies them. And they started insisting that hospitals get stroke certified. And if you were stroke certified, then all patients who might have a stroke are then delivered by ambulance to your door. And hospitals are fighting over patients now. In your article, you speak to a number of guideline authors. And um, from the outside, it seems that obviously these these conflicting interests seem like a, a bad idea. Speaking to them on the inside, is there any feeling that it's not great, but it's the best they can do? Or how, how do they sort of reason it? Well, I think there's two different attitudes. One, among those panelists who were, for example, on the stroke panel, their attitude is that they are the experts. They are the content experts, and they've been asked to speak for industry because they have this expertise. They don't see it as a conflict. But there is another group that says, well, potentially it could be, but I'm not influenced. And we see this disparity between what people think and about themselves and what actually occurs in terms of what we know occurs in bias. And then among people who are opposed to these conflicts and feel that we should straighten them out, there's still a strong feeling that we can't find experts who aren't conflicted. That's just not true. Um, Shannon Brownlee and I published in BMJ a list of uh, non-industry uh, conflicted experts, and there are quite a few very well-trained experts in methodology who could be used on these panels and who've been available, but they don't get tapped. We gave that list to the FDA, and yet the FDA hasn't tapped um, these top experts <laughs> for their panels. The overwhelming majority of panelists, chairs, and co-chairs are financially conflicted. And once you get a chair and a co-chair who are in the pay of industry, what they can do is people the panel or pack the panel with people they know are for the drug that they want to promote or the screening test or the intervention that they want to promote. And that seems to be what happened with TPA for stroke. I mean, how else do you get not one single skeptic when a poll showed that the overwhelming majority of emergency physicians were skeptics? And the article, it, it focuses on TPA as the most recent example that we have. But you think this is a lot more widespread than just that? Not only widespread, but impacting uh, some of the most common conditions. So we know that the uh, statin drugs for cholesterol, there we have a clear-cut influence of uh, drug companies on the guidelines. Same thing with EPO for anemia and chronic renal failure, erythropoietin-stimulating agents 
we don't have as widespread a problem there, but in terms of billions of dollars consumed, it's enormous. And yet there was not only no better outcome, there were actually somewhat worse outcomes when they loosened the regulations so that they would have more patients on the drugs. In fact, I just read the statistic on that, and it was over 90% of all patients um, on dialysis were getting these drugs. Now, now you've, you've written this article and you've looked at these things and you've spoken to, to the various people involved. Did you come away with any sense that, that there is a silver bullet for this in that it's gone on for a long time and it's still obviously a widespread problem? Is, is it an, a solvable problem from your experience? We believe it is. And I say we because I'm involved with a group of um, experts and methodologists right now who are writing some uh, a proposed guideline for guidelines, a way to look at guidelines and read them for how valid uh, they are. Perhaps the biggest stumbling block, though, isn't the raters themselves, but the literature and, and the research that's done. And so, you know, we're going to need research that isn't conducted by industry or alternatively, what we need is access to the raw database. And I know that BMJ has been really in the forefront of trying to ensure that we can get access to these data. So that's a starting point. But after that, we do need independent raters and methodologists. And we have several ideas that um, we're going to be writing about that we think can greatly improve the way guidelines are written. And we've already seen it. So for example, with PSA screening, here's another widespread issue affecting virtually all men who ever reach the age of 40 or 50. There were guidelines that came out from the American Urologic Association, and those guidelines strongly recommended uh, PSA screening with some provisos that you talk to the patients. And they're conflicted. I mean, this is how these doctors make their living. Many of them were involved with device manufacturers as well as drug makers. So you could say that they had a conflict in promoting PSA, and that's how the guideline came out. On the other hand, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, which strongly prohibits any financial conflicts of interest, came out with a guideline in which they said that there was no proven benefit from screening PSA, routine screening with PSA. So guidelines do come out differently, whether it's from an independent source or a non-independent source. Yeah. I suppose sort of the bottom line of a lot of that is what can you actually trust? It's a matter of making sure the guidelines are trustworthy is my sending out. Exactly. Thanks very much for your time, Jeannie. That's really interesting. And I look forward a lot to the, the second feature here in, in this series. Very good. Thanks a lot. Next up, home births versus hospital births. Jos van Rauschmalen from the Department of Obstetrics, Leiden University Medical Centre, is co-author of a paper investigating this in the Netherlands. I spoke to him over the phone to hear more about the research. Our system is uh, under severe pressure because hospitals are going to work together, which means that there are less places where you can actually get your babies uh, implicating that the distance from home to hospital, although we are a very small country, uh, they might become bigger, where it will be, of course, one of the factors uh, which will uh, determine acute maternal morbidity. When we talk about severe acute maternal morbidity, we mean those women who have been admitted to an intensive care unit uh, or having had uterine rupture, eclampsia, 
and what we call major obstetric hemorrhage, which is defined as having had at least four units of blood. And we said, okay, let's look into this. And, and we thought, okay, uh, we know maternal morbidity is, 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 of course, a relatively rare event. But if the distance from hospital and the delay which occurs is taking place in those women delivering at home, well, we still have to consider maybe the unsafety uh, because, in fact, if you are without complications at the onset of birth, the most frequent complication are, of course, problems related to the third stage of labor with the retained placenta and postpartum hemorrhage. And we know that hem hemorrhage can can be a very quick event uh, where you really need a quick response. So we, we, we hypothesize that maybe those women... Uh, delivering at home would have a higher maternal morbidity than those who were delivering uh, their babies in hospital. So could you talk us through your results then? Because um, you had an extremely large cohort. You looked at almost 148,000 women in, in the end. So what did you find there? Well, we only looked at those women who were still under primary care at the onset of labour. If it is between 37 and 42 weeks, that's number one. They should not have any risk factors like caesarean section in the history and things like that, where those women really have a choice in the place of delivery. Our conclusion is it is as safe to deliver at home, as far as the mother is concerned, uh, than in hospital. They can really make that choice uh, with with confidence. Mm. But but it wasn't just equal, was it? There was actually a statistically significant yes. difference. Yes, that is true. Well, our hypothesis is not true that there is more maternal morbidity at home. It's the opposite, uh, especially in those women who are not primigravid women. Okay. Is there something else in the risk profile that we haven't looked at, or, or what do you think is going on there? Well, I think one of the reasons is that uh, in the multiples we know about what happened during the first pregnancy, and those ones who had a postpartum hemorrhage or retained placenta in the first pregnancy, they are not in the low-risk profile uh, right. in the next pregnancy. I'm always trying to oppose uh, one of the, the, the WHO slogans. They say every pregnancy faces risk. You cannot predict complications. And of course, we will never be able uh, to, pre uh, to predict complications correctly always. But in our country, maternal morbidity is occurring in seven out of 1,000. In this low-risk profile, it is below two per 1,000. So we, we still think that our risk selection process, and that is the pillar of our system, and making a distinction between low and high risk, is functioning relatively well. Because these, these absolute risks are, are really very small. Yeah, but of course it depends well-trained midwives who are looking into the issue of is home in this particular case an appropriate place for delivery. That can also be making it high risk. You see, um, let's say 
you live in a flat on the fourth floor and there is no lift where it might be difficult to transfer the woman from that place to hospital, then the midwives generally will advise against home birth. So, so it's it's not just these clinical risk factors no, that also, are coming into play. It, it's, it's, it's also more more social. I think in the past it were just clinical issues, but now the social issue and the setting itself is very important. Mm. Do you think there is something of of overuse and, and overtreatment that's coming into to play here as well? If if women are in hospital, then there is a tendency to to overtreat. Definitely. Well, I have been working in in hospital, and I know that uh, generally speaking, it is very difficult for doctors to not do anything. They induce, they augment, they do operative deliveries not always on very good medical grounds. And then in the Netherlands, we have relatively low intervention figures, but but, but even then, I I think uh, our caesarean section rate is also higher than, than is justified by pure medical reasoning. Are there any other implications, um, you think, from this study, possibly from a perspective of other countries? It doesn't seem as though the message is simply we should be encouraging more women to give birth at home. It seems that we should be looking at your, your system. Yeah, but you see the system itself, which is in place in the country, should be supportive of the idea of home birth. And, and, and in, in, in many countries, there is generally a problem of hospital people not trusting midwives who are trying to convince women to deliver at home. I think you also have women themselves even when they are not low risk because they don't like uh, the way they are treated in hospitals, they try to deliver at home. And and, uh, for instance, at this stage now in the Netherlands, there are two cases, uh, one of a breech delivery and, and, and one of a twin delivery where women delivered at home, which of course is not what we would like. And we know that in many countries where there are very few home births, it's not necessarily so that only low-risk women deliver at home. And that is one of our very important pillars of the system. It really should be low-risk. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And both Jeannie Lenz's feature and Jos van Rauschmalen's paper are now up on bmj.com. That's everything for this week. Next Friday, we'll be looking into what doctors can do to tackle intimate partner and sexual violence towards women. So come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.